0: If the cold, blustery end of winter seems to drag its feet, this episode of Confect Corner aims to do the opposite. We'll propel you towards spring's sense of promise with newfangled projects and cultural exploits. This show champions beauty in adversity. We speak to Ukrainian fashion designer Lilia Litkovskaya. We'll explore the embattled history of Kurdistan through a brilliant new book and beautiful series of recently discovered photos and we'll chart the history of humanity through a compendium of kitchen tools, from the first cauldron to the modern whisk. As ever, we'll whip up a couple of ideas, edited finds, and new exciting discoveries. This is Conflict Corner,
1: and I'm Sophie Grove. Growing up in this production, I feel everything through my fingers. And for me, very important to save the traditional, but in contemporary way, when you can draw and you can paint, you try to express not in words. You try
2: to express a lot in images, and that's, I think, also how I think. I don't think a lot in words. I first think in images.
0: Welcome to the thirteenth episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host Sophie Grove in London, and I'm joined by my two sidekicks, Gillian DeBias here with me in the studio. And Marcella Palak in our Zurich office. Hello, sorry to call you a sidekick. You're much more than that. I'm happy to be a sidekick <laughs> in studio, Sophie. <laughs> Hi Marcella. Hello.
3: Hello from Zurich.
0: Now, as our long time listeners will know, we always like to start with something that's caught our attention in recent weeks.
4: Uh, let's start with you today, Sophie. Uh what's caught your eye? So the
0: day before yesterday, I went to an amazing uh, talk in a gallery, Pi Artworks, down in Fitzrovia. And it's a group show, but there was one amazing... Speaker that stood out. This who turns out to be a fashion designer, called Richard Malone, and he's Irish from County Wexford. He exhibits a show every season, but his works are now being collected by a lot of art collectors. And his one of his pieces was exhibited on this mannequin, and it was absolutely incredible. Um, sort of ruched purple suit with an amazing sort of sculptural, asymmetrical headpiece. It felt like it was about to burst to life, but actually it was obviously static that time. But he often, um, you know, inhabits the pieces himself and, you know, really interacts with the pieces. And it just was so stunning and amazing to see it. It reminded me of Diaghilev or, or something like that. And his his understanding and his approach to the work was just so... I don't know, it was just one of those moments that I thought, how wonderful. Uh, what a discovery for me, at least. Oh, and it is always so nice when art is, I mean, not quite
4: performance art, but it comes off the canvas in an unsuspecting way. I think that's what I love.
0: And also just that sense that you know, fashion, art, design is actually you know, cross-fertilising and there aren't such strict categories actually at the moment necessarily. And I think that's quite refreshing. It's wonderful to see, you know, Rich Malone was talking to another Irish artist called Sarah Dwyer. And the practice is very similar. And I think that actually we don't need to categorize as much as we possibly do. But Marcella, how about you? You've just returned from Copenhagen.
3: Yeah, there was the, the Fashion Week during a really not so pleasant, uh, pleasant weather. It was really gray, rainy, dark and therefore their really um colorful fashion collections were very refreshing and um then i did also some shopping a little bit it has to be always <laughs> of course <laughs> um i went to a actually a very iconic long existing fashion store institution called holy go lightly and i thought every time it's not the first first time i was there it's it's such an amazing space with such inspiring Small niche brands, and it it's actually like in at an, in an apartment from somebody, and it's just inviting to stay longer. It's beautiful. I I felt in love in a in a sunflower yellow pajama by Copenhagen based Tekla, woven platform sandals by Colville, and a long kaftan by Rihanna and Nina and i could continue like this you see definitely
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> had to iron some more summery garb maybe yeah. <laughs> not for the we- not for the weather there at
3: no. the moment
0: <laughs> uh, Gillian, you've just come back from paris almost just about 15 minutes ago, I saw you stepping out of that taxi, <laughs> <laughs> but you you were out last night. This S- is sc- it.
4: Skidded into the studio <laughs> off the Eurostar, but we, we literally were there for a day for uh, some meetings and we managed to find time to to visit our, our, our Lebanese friend, Kamal Muziwak's new Paris outpost of Taulé. and. You know, uh, we talk about uh, Kamal and him being an ambassador for his country and this Taille Paris is exactly that. It's It's like a little embassy in Paris because the whole premise of it is uniting Lebanese communities by featuring the cooking and the cuisine of the mothers of the family, recipes that have been passed down from generations. And he's created his table, Taulé means table in Arabic. And um, there's the regional cooking by the Lebanese women, And it's also an epicery with the most wonderful Lebanese products. And he's creating products with French uh, producers. And it's just this lovely emporium full of color and the warmth of Lebanon. So I'm glowing, I'm still glowing.
0: And Kamau, I mean, the the food is amazing. I mean, I, I've been to the, to the Beirut um, kind of incarnation of Taulet, and so lucky Parisians that he's decided to replicate or at least, you know, do something interesting in Paris. Now, as Kamal is showing in his restaurant, cooking is part of our culture. And for many of us, it can be a way of connecting with people and socialising with friends. We all love a good dinner party, as Gillian knows. (laughs) But what about the tools we use in the kitchen and what stories can we learn from them?
4: Tools for Food is a new book by writer and curator Corinne Minot, opening up our kitchen drawers and detailing the history and stories behind some of the most exquisite, intriguing and best-loved utensils.
0: Corinne, it's absolutely lovely to see you in the studio and you've written for Confect, the magazine, uh, a beautiful essay, but it's amazing to have the book in hand and really go through these 250 objects and it's it's just—it feels like a kind of wonderful history of humanity in a way, because you have this kind of—it's there's technology in there, but then you're going back to the essence of, you know, civilization and just the essential pot. Um, you've got a cauldron in there, which is kind of where it all started. Uh, can you tell me about the kind of sort of journey of finding these objects and how you found the very old, the oldest ones in there? <laughs>
5: Yes. Well, as you say, I mean, the cauldron is one of the oldest ones and that sort of form is very basic. You know, it started in terracotta cooking in vessels like that and eventually, you know, with the Bronze Age and metals and Iron Age, um, creating the cauldron that was a sort of more robust way to cook. But as you say, what's been so amazing and interesting about this project is looking back at humanity and culture. And I think these objects are so overlooked in the amount of information that they contain within them, whether it's a cauldron from thousands of years ago or a tin opener or a spatula. There's so much history about industry, man's ingenuity, our cultures, how we eat together, what we eat together, the ingredients that we eat together. So there's so much
0: richness within them. And the stories that each one holds, I mean, the book is beautifully photographed and there's a lovely sense of kind of tactility in the in the photos. But the sense that each one has, you know, been used, has been owned and had its purpose and has its purpose. There's um, so many layers to what you're doing. I mean, there's, it starts with sort of who invented this thing? Uh, but then also, you know, how it's been employed in kitchens, um, you know, in homes around the world. Do you find yourself down a rabbit hole, like thinking about these things?
5: Totally. And what I love is that there's so many objects in here that join us together. That we have sort of similar ones across the world, but that are different depending on what culture you're in. For example, I mean the the One that I go back to all the time is the mortar and pestle. It's very clear. You know, in Italy, we make pesto. In Japan, they have the suribachi where they ground sesame seeds or miso. But also, yesterday, I was looking back at the ham stand. And there's a ham stand in there from butchers in England. But also, you know, you go to Spain, you go to Italy, they have their own version of ham stands for carving serrano ham. So it's very different, but it's also the same. We we have a similar need to hold ham. In different ways,
0: and that's why it's it's wonderful. It, it it charts the history of migration in some ways, but also technology, the way we exchanged ideas. And um, I mean, you've got some rather wonderful implements in the studio. Um, it's just it's great to sort of see them all laid out, kind of like tinkling, shining. I'd start maybe with this amazing horn shaped um, copper vessel with a big handle on it. It just looks completely puzzling to me and this is one of my favorites
5: um when you leaf through the book it is a full double page spread and it's an ale warmer the one in the book is in the shape of a shoe or a boot uh, which is just so funny um you know it's about 20 to 30 centimeters longer or, or maybe even longer and basically you put the ale in the object and you stick it in the fire to warm it up now that was done for a few reasons to kill bacteria but also you could mix spices in there like cloves and then it has a little um Pouring spout on the end that you can dish it out to friends. This one is slightly different. Um, this is my one from my personal collection, which is this sort of cone shape, which you similarly stick in the coals of the fire, and it warms your ale, and then you can pour it out or drink directly. But I think it'd be quite hot.
0: It's it's magnificent. I mean, look at this thing. <laughs> but it's it's funny, like how some things have lasted, and some things have almost become defunct, like this one. I mean, here we've got some other things that look very, very modern. This is a nutcracker, a very beautiful nutcracker, in fact. But can you tell me if this looks fairly recent yes absolutely
5: <laughs> this is a absolutely this is a nutcracker by robert welch and this same object is in the collection of the vna and i think also some other design collections around the world nutcrackers are something that have been around for a very long time and there's a few particular objects or typologies of objects in the book that somehow some designers are very inclined to kind of really work with and make some really crazy and or beautiful objects and the nutcracker is one of those things and of course um you know we've had a need to open nuts for centuries but not so much anymore you know so this object allows itself to be extraordinarily beautiful but the kind of use of them is is kind of waning and except maybe at christmas a few times which is a shame because there's beautiful and really fun objects surrounding them i'm fascinated by
0: that why well, the listeners can't see this but it's a kind of beautiful kind of pair of elaborate sort of pinching scissors. (laughs) It looks like something might be from a milliner's. I don't know. (laughs) Absolutely. And maybe from the 19th century, but this feels like the antiques rage show now.
5: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That is a sugar nipper and it's very particular and is no longer used because it was for basically chopping off chunks of sugar from sugar cones, which is how sugar used to be formed when you bought it in the UK. So either the shop would have a pair of sugar nippers and they would kind of snip off smaller bits of the cone to give to you. Or if you were a very wealthy household, you would have your own set of sugar nippers in your house. And they're really elaborate, sort of organic, baroque sort of, also slightly menacing medieval looking objects that allow you to sort of pinch off those bits of
0: sugar. I was looking through the book and feeling a bit nostalgic in a way. I mean, you mentioned kind of the the advent of processed food, which has disassociated us from these implements, even peelers, even nutcrackers, Mm. but also other things that we fit, knives that we used to carve, butchery. We've become quite alienated from these tools. And I wonder whether you think there's a bit of a revival going on. Um, Certainly from when I was living in Paris, I met some manufacturers that said, you know, actually people want these things in their lives again they were nearly extinct and now we're seeing a whole new generation coming back and saying we want these kind of vinegar jars we want this garlic pot that's specifically designed for storing garlic and airing it and they work but they also they make they have a sense of elegance and purpose in your life that is somehow quite sort of I don't know, it just it, it's, it feels good for you to have these things around that has that specificity. Mm. Um, what's your take on that?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's part of the last thing that I say in the introduction of the book is that I hope that through looking at these objects again, that it can sort of remind people of sort of having a sort of reverence for food. I think certainly during lockdown and COVID that, you know, people were becoming closer again to food because they were having to cook. I mean, on the other side of the spectrum, people were writing a lot of takeaways, I'm sure. But I think people were thinking more about that process and taking that time to do that and what they eat and what they put in their bodies and sort of caring about that more. And certainly by looking at each of these objects and getting into the design and culture and the technology behind them, but also the nostalgia of certain objects that mean something to people. People, whether it was handed down or a new object, you know, that brings them joy in the kitchen. I certainly hope, I mean, it's a big ambition for the book, but, but that this book can highlight that for people.
0: I know you have the most amazing kind of museum-worthy collection of these things now, but also you love Le Creuset and beautiful kind of pans and pots. I mean, I've got the Le Creuset, little, actually the same one in the book, orange classic and it just sits on the side like a just constant presence in the home and now it's like you know where is it it feels like and each meal that you make somehow builds on its kind of character and memories I feel like the French have always been doing that and they haven't stopped do you think that maybe I don't know it feels like people are starting to kind of slightly invest more in their pans and feel that sort of relationship. (laughs) I feel like I'm taking it a bit far (laughs) with their pans and treating them, washing them correctly and all of those things.
5: Certainly. I mean, I think it's a sort of life investment to have these important objects in your kitchen. And I think you, like many people, have le creuset's on the top of their stove, as you said off air, that, you know, they don't fit in certain cupboards, so they kind of have pride of place on the stove. But I think certainly people are investing more in that it's very
0: important. I can't even bring myself can't bring myself to quote Emily in Paris on, on air. But you know, there's an idea that we you should scrub everything down. And it should all be kind of like you know sterilized. That's almost going out of fashion as well because these pans have patina. They have layers of flavor and sort of almost memory, which is quite interesting and almost counterintuitive to our sense of cleaning and, and being hygienic.
5: Yes. I mean, that exists across the world. For example, the wok, when you clean it, you need to season it afterwards by putting oil and heating it on the stove. And the same with, um, you know, cast iron pans in Europe. You you can't scrub it all off because it affects the, the cast iron. You need to have that oil in there. And I think there's, you know, legends across the world of pans that have been cooking for hundreds of years and never been properly cleaned. And, yeah, I think there's
0: something in that and something that gets passed down. Corinne Miner, thank you for joining us on Confect Corner. Her book, Tools for Food, is published by Hardy Grant Books and is out now.
4: Sophie, I have a feeling that if we opened your kitchen uh,
0: drawers, you've, you'd
4: have a whole host of intriguing utensils.
0: Well, I picked up a lot in in France in my in my hunts through the brocante, probably alongside Corinne. <laughs> <She's, laughs> but then I've I have got some amazing, beautiful. I've got, I've got a jam spoon which is. Got a little kink just so it sits on the side of the jar, which I think is particularly nice, and um, just really lovely things in France that they're still using that have completely disappeared from our kitchens in, in our, elsewhere in the world. A beautiful garlic jar which is perforated, um, ceramic, so the you know the garlic can breathe. Mm. Lovely these egg you know egg baskets and things like that that actually make your life much easier. What about you, Gillian? Do you have any?
4: Well, yes. For me, it's very much about the ritual of eating. So one of my favorite utensils is um, a very sharp, perforated, curved grapefruit knife. And I just have memories of being a child and watching the rhythm of my father cut round the grapefruit. Now, I'm sure there are other knives and you can do it a bit more rough and ready. You don't have to have a grapefruit knife. But it was that ritual of watching him do my grapefruit in the morning but it's amazingly difficult to find a perforated curved grapefruit and I, and I ended up having to find it in Paris at the wonderful department at Le Bon Marché Oh good.
0: and Marcella you must have some, some quirky utensils at home
3: Actually I have something very similar like Gillian I have an orange knife it's something completely different than the grapefruit one, but the, the orange knife, I inherited it from my grandmother. It must be from the 20s, last century, and it's, it's just beautiful because it adds so much elegance to peeling and eating an orange, what usually is like quite a juicy action. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. You, you can eat an orange in a very, very nice, elegant way. Even in an restaurant. So this knife is everything for me.
0: And I think that Corinne was interesting talking about the stories and like the relationships people have. I've got a whole set of Moviel copper and I, I just feel like I take them wherever I go around the world, wherever I've lived, they've come with me. You know, I've got one LaCruzé, I feel like it's part of the family. I mean I, I think that you can get very maybe too attached, but it's the right thing. This is a you know, it's a collection of sorts. It is, and I think that's why
4: collecting at the Balkans is
0: so important because all
4: these pieces do have histories, and it's really nice to find new owners uh, for these histories.
0: Cinematographer and director Zamarin Wahadat was born in Kabul and grew up in Hamburg. When she was a student, director Carol Dysinger spotted her and asked her to join as a visual designer and translator on her film, Learning to Skateboard in a War Zone if You're a Girl, which won the Oscar for Best Documentary Short in 2020.
4: This experience led her to write and direct her first short film, Bambarak, which explores themes of identity and childhood, looking at the everyday racism experienced by people with an immigrant background in Germany and her own relationship with her father.
0: The film follows eight-year-old Katty and her father Farouk as he juggles being a single dad whilst holding down his first job in a new country. Film critic Karen Kuzanovic caught up with Wahadat on the sidelines of the Berlinale earlier this month.
3: The
2: film is very autobiographical. My dad used to deliver packages in Hamburg and my sister's name is Katy it's based on many memories of my childhood when i had a day off there was a day which was called girl's day so you had to choose one of your parents you accompany to work i chose my dad because i was a father's girl <laughs> it was a really beautiful day i got to know him finally what he does when he's away for 10 hours a day like he was never at home just working constantly And the moment when he showed me doing his lunch break and he opened up the back of his van and we had a little green mattress and he rolled it out and he was like, sometimes I sleep here for an hour and just close the doors. I don't know why, but suddenly tears shot shot up like were shooting up my eyes and I felt such a sudden sadness because I think something inside me realized my dad is working so hard and why is he sleeping in the back of a van on a mattress in his lunch break and all by himself? It made me very sad because I knew what he did before in Afghanistan. And at home when he were alone, he was always looking for other jobs or things he could do as a, an engineer, but was never successful. Like he was too old or his German was too bad and his diploma wasn't accepted. That's why he did. And he loved, he loved delivering the packages and being his own boss. But for me, it was hard to accept because I didn't realize the difficulties he went through to get another job. But in the same time, I had all these friends. I went to a very, very German school, a really good school. We just stood out as the foreigners and as the working class. This memory prompted Bambirak. And I started to actually reflect upon all the years, upon my father and see him from a Not from my child's point of view, because there you just don't understand your parents. I didn't understand why my dad is becoming so angry so quickly when my sister and me are not allowed to touch the clothes in a store when he gives us money to do so. Because we didn't realize that this woman didn't like foreigners. We thought this woman doesn't allow kids in her store. In my mind, I was, we were just like, why do you have to now go inside the store and fight with the woman? that's what he did and it was embarrassing for us as children and the movie is actually for me personally it's trying to understand my father how it was for him to raise his children in a new country and start from zero through kati which is my which is a mix of me and my sister if i'm honest and that's how bambira came into existence i i wanted to show how the bond of a father and a daughter are affected by the environment they live in and the love for each other and what sacrifices they make or they have to make. Like him making her apologize even though even though he knows she did not steal. But he needs to keep his job and he doesn't want to get reported or lose the job he has to provide for his child, his family. But how that affects actually the dynamics between a parent and a child I think is something that we don't see in a lot of films yet, but there are films coming out They're now about this experience.
6: You've got an enormous number of festivals under your belt already, and you're also planning a documentary on uh, Sarah Mardini, mm-hmm. which is fascinating.
2: Tell me, tell me why you're inspired by her. I mean, we just—it's in post-production now. She inspires me because she's someone who she sticks to the truth. She doesn't let herself be bent. She has a I think a very traumatic experience, crossing the ocean with her little sister, Yusra. She's a professional swimmer, so their boat didn't work. And they she jumped in, and then the little sister followed. And somehow they managed to get the boat in the middle of the night onto the Greek shore. And then after that, she decides to go back and become a rescue swimmer in Lesbos. It's like... She could have chosen differently. She could have chosen a different way. But she was like, no, this happened to me. And I want to go back and help as a humanitarian. And I think that's a very, very brave decision to make. People usually run away from their trauma, from bad experience. But she actually went back and experienced it again and again. She doesn't make decisions that make her life easier. She makes decisions because she believes in them. And she's like, if people don't like me the way I am, I'm not going to let myself be bent just to fit into their notion of what a refugee is and what I should say and not say. I know she thinks she's not strong, but for me, and I told her, she's one of the strongest women I've ever met. That's why she inspires me.
6: She sounds very similar to you, actually, I have to say. A lot I've been reading about you. And I think what's interesting is that we were talking earlier when we sat down here that you were saying how unusual it was for you to be in front of the camera for the photo shoot here in the Berlin in Berlin 2022. Um, used to being behind the lens, but you too are speaking your truth and you too are strong in the face of wanting to be creative and to tell the story that you think is important and needs to be told?
2: Maybe. Sometimes I think like I could have a slice of Sarah Mardini because she's tough and she's very, very like direct and I tend to be more mellow, (laughs) you know, more calm. But yeah, maybe in a way, we we do follow our passions. I mean, I did follow my passion, even though no one really believed in my success as a filmmaker in the beginning. I mean, you say, I want to become a filmmaker, and your family is like, okay, how do you want to make money? And like, for years, you do films, you do short films, and you are in this bubble, but your family still doesn't understand what you do. And then there's this point when The Oscar comes in, of course, changed a lot, even how my family sees me. They were supportive, but I know there was always like something, oh, the crazy artist, and it's like, she's an artist, and let's see when she makes money.
6: (laughs) (laughs) But I I think people are mystified by movies, you know. We we all watch movies, and we're all film critics, but we don't understand the enormous work, teamwork, collaborative effort, and planning that comes into even making a short. Huge amounts of time. And I think it's one of the reasons why the film industry has been so good handling COVID crisis, because the film industry creates problems to solve them. Just, yeah. Yes, so, but you instinctively wanted to, I mean, it's. and I mean, it's changing now with more and more female cinematographers. Generally, it's very male oriented. But what I liked about what you said in the interview earlier, you said uh, you grew up with a lot of different languages around you. And you said, but when you play, you don't need words. And I thought, which was wonderful, was that, and now you are working without words. I mean, you are working with words, but mostly with images and telling stories in images. And so it's international. I was wondering, where do you see your creativity coming from? Where is it springing from?
2: I do see a lot of similarities between me and my mother the more I also grow up. And she's the creative part of my universe. She's a poem, a writer, and she is a storyteller. She can tell and recall stories so well. As a child, I was always at my desk drawing five hours a day and not getting bored. I always saw things. I didn't draw things I saw in real life. I was drawing out of my heart and inventing things. And just like on the paper, I made comics about my sister, (laughs) Kati. It already started with six. As soon as I learned writing, I was like, Making comic books for my sister and uh, making little stories, and I think it just came. I was never good in that good in science, like math was really hard for me. But <laughs> and I never understood it. But the cre- I was naturally even my parents saw it and my sister saw it, like I was always creative. I I think as soon as I could write, I was writing stories, and before I was drawing stories. So. It was always very visual, I think. When you can draw and you can paint, you try to express not in words, you try to express a lot in images. And that's, I think, also how I think. I don't think a lot in words, I first think in images.
0: Director and cinematographer Zamarin Wahadat in conversation with film critic Karen Krasanovich at this year's edition of the Berlin International Film Festival.
4: Coming up, we meet Ukrainian fashion designer Lilia Litkovskaya in Kiev. Confect's deputy editor, Chiara Rumella, joined Sophie on a gallery visit and will be musing on the beauty of book clubs. This is Confect Corner.
0: Now, the world has moved very quickly in the past few days. As we were putting the finishing touches to this show, and a story which was reported in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev only a few weeks ago, Russian forces moved across the border and invaded the country. The subject of Paige Reynolds's report, Lilia Litkovskaya, has since fled her home in Kiev with her two-year-old daughter to the safety of Milan via Poland. Clearly the future of her business and the fate of Ukrainian society is very uncertain and the situation is incredibly bleak. Despite the shocking turn of events, we decided to run Page's piece. As this report describes, Ukrainian fashion has blossomed in the past few years and has reached international audiences and acclaim. Brands like Litkovsky are propelled by a strong, resilient Ukrainian identity, employing a network of craftspeople and know-how. Though she's now a refugee, the brand stands as a testament to the potential of democratic Ukraine and its
7: brave creative entrepreneurs. In downtown Kiev, walk between the two tricolour flags of Café Charlotte on Torhinevskaya Street, weave your way to the back and up to the fourth floor and you'll find the showroom of Ukrainian fashion designer Lilia Litkovskaya. On a snowy and rather wet January afternoon, I'm welcomed in by one of Lilia's studio assistants, who leads me into the high ceilinged room where neatly organised racks of heavy coats and sculptural dresses shoot out of the walls. Lilia's running a little late. She's currently making her way from a production house across town where her newly founded School of Art and Craft runs workshops for young designers. It's a project Lilia is extremely passionate about. What began as just a few Zoom sessions during the first wave of the pandemic, from a desire to pass on her know-how and industry contacts, is now a fully-fledged programme, where emerging designers, artisans and artists are supported through sponsorships. I
1: saw the gap because official education, I think... um, a little bit old school and private schools don't give the deep knowledges of industry because I know the pattern making I know everything about fabrics I know stitching technology because I am like addicted of technology and new materials and researching new materials and I love researching big process, have to find interesting ideas from different spheres, yeah, and uh, gather in one mood board. Everything of it we are teaching yeah, in our uh, school, School Art and Craft.
7: As Lilia explains, detailed research is an enormous part of her design process. It's particularly apparent when it comes to the elements of traditional Ukrainian craftsmanship she incorporates in her designs, such as old Carpathian weaving techniques. Hailing from four generations of tailors and garment makers, Lilia was exposed to garment production from a young age.
1: Growing up in this production, I feel everything through my fingers. And for me, very important to save the traditional, but in contemporary way, breathe new blood in old uh, traditional. And the artisanal line, we have artisanal line, this is sustainable line, built in this way, built in uh, total traditional way.
7: In this artisanal line, old production leftovers are collected, sorted into fabric types and reworked into a thread before being weaved into a quilt-like fabric from which one-off pieces are created. While they used to be produced across Ukraine in an ad-hoc fashion, depending on which factory had the right know-how or capacity for each product, that's now starting to change.
1: Three months ago, we opened our big production For produce uh, mass production in one place. But uh, at the same time, we continue to place orders in uh, another production.
7: Mm -hmm. And all in Ukraine?
1: All in Ukraine, yeah.
7: Since Litkovskaya was founded in 2009, the Ukrainian fashion industry has taken a quantum leap, both in terms of its homegrown scene and international recognition.
1: Many Ukrainian brands sell or love the world and we have really strong designers. And I'm sure that Ukrainian artists in different way, musician, photographer, designers, architects, it's like a cluster of creativity. It's like a cloud, I don't know, it's like an unplowed field. And I think if you create something special, something ta 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 and sound from here, it's something
7: special there. At the time of our interview, tensions were escalating, but there was a sense of disbelief that a Russian invasion would get as far as the city walls. What's happened since is truly unimaginable and we can only hope that designers and artists such as Lilia still have a city to live and work in in the future. Though prior to war entering the capital, I got Lilia's thoughts on what it's like to be a designer in such a volatile environment. It
1: makes me stronger. And through this not simple way in um, political, economic uh, situation in Ukraine, uh, developing myself inside... To be stronger, to be confident. I would like to tell about Ukraine and Ukrainian artists more and more. We are really a strong nationality.
7: For Convert Corner in Kiev, I'm Paige Reynolds.
0: So Paige, we decided to run this piece despite what's happened over the past few days. You were in Kiev only a few weeks ago. Give me a sense of what the city was like. Um, you met Lilia in her studio. But this was really, there was a certainly an impending mood you mention in the piece. Um, but the creative kind of levity of, of, of the piece
7: is really a world that no longer exists. It's totally surreal, to be honest. I can't imagine what it's like actually being there When I went out there a few weeks ago, I'd been in Kiev about 10 years prior to that and I couldn't believe how much it had changed as a city, how much life there was, how much energy there was. I met so many different creative people. I met Lilia, I met a couple of architects out there, you know, people who are investing in the infrastructure of the city and its future. Um, Filmmakers from Ireland and Berlin, people who had flocked to the city because of its sort of creative scene. It's quite bohemian feel. Um, And then to think that... It's simply a city now that is being invaded by Russia. It's a city where people are trying to escape from. It's a city that's been under curfew all weekend. It's, it's totally unimaginable. I mean, we're seeing um, on, on all the news networks, refugees
0: pouring over all the land borders that you can see, um, you know, Poland particularly, some quite harrowing scenes and men turning back to go and fight, uh, you know, leaving their families. And this is exactly what happened to Lilia. I mean, it's interesting to have such a direct connection to someone who had to leave her life at the drop of a hat and just go to Milan
7: where she is, but you're in touch with her. I'm in touch with Lilia. Um, I've been in touch with a lot of the people, obviously, who I met out there to just check in and see whether they're safe, to see you know where they've got to, have they fled, are they staying? It's a mix at the moment between people who are staying and going. A lot of people, of course, who have families to look after, they're the ones who are really trying to get out at the moment because it is just so unsafe and uncertain. Uh, so Lilia was able to get across to Poland with her daughter and uh, is now taking refuge in Milan. Uh, but it's just, it's totally crazy. She was preparing for Paris Fashion Week and now and now she's a refugee. I don't really know how to even really conceive of that.
0: Even from our perspective, I mean, I had a page ready to go for the magazine on Kiev and all the beautiful brands that come from there. It just felt like, you know, obviously it's, it's not a, a moment to publish that, but it just shows you how quickly things can change. And, and these brilliant, as we say, very brave, intrepid, very creative people really drawing on all the talents and this subculture and this avant-garde that there really was thriving in the city and it partly was because of that liberation and the revolution that happened in 2014 galvanized that. You can see the correlation and it just feels so heartbreaking to watch it crumble. Welcome to the studio, Chiara. You are now deputy editor of Confect. I'm very happy to have you <laughs> at my side upstairs in the office, but also here on the podcast, we're going to give you a little section because your metier is very much the arts um, and you're, you're the culture editor of Monocle. Um, so that's really your domain <laughs> <laughs> here at Confect Corner. And um we went to a little confect outing um, yesterday, which was great. And it was like, you know, we were, we were on tour. We only went down to the <laughs> Somerset House, London. It felt
8: like <laughs> such a faraway land. It was a beautiful
0: day. So tell us about this exhibition, because it's a small show at the Courtauld Institute, but very arresting.
8: Definitely. So I think that both you and I have an interest towards... I guess histories of places as well of arts itself. And this is a photographic show titled Kurdistan in the 1940s. Um, In a very small room on the kind of the side of the Courtauld Gallery is a great opportunity for us to go see the Courtauld again. I mean, I know that it was one of your old haunts, but I hadn't really been in years and it's really been spruced up. The staircase is now painted in a kind of really, really brilliant blue and all of the pieces have been rehung. It's really quite looking quite spick and span. Uh, what's your memories of, I guess, like going to the Courtauld back in the days, kind of trawling through the books in the library? Well,
0: I used to spend hours reading and and you know writing dissertations and things because I studied at London University and down in the, the vaults where the library was, it was quite amazing and all of the Courtauld students would be there just shevelled and romantically kind of <laughs> having crises. And then we had <laughs> and all you have included, drinks in
5: the pub afterwards.
0: But it was much more dishevelled, actually, the the, the courtyard itself, it was worse for wear. So they they've obviously invested a lot in restoring the cornicing, the kind of eighteenth century flourish of the building now feels very sort of elegantly restored. Um and the collection is amazing. I mean we saw Gauguin, you know, absolutely amazing Monets. It's quite transportative. So a lot of Côte
8: d'Azur in there. Yes. Which we kind of needed <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> Not that London isn't nice enough, but uh, yes, it, we did get a bit of Antibes whilst whilst we were going through the rooms. I do think that that transportation to Kurdistan in the 1940s was particularly interesting because it had a, a definite melancholy if not a kind of an undertone of tragedy if we want to say because the imagery is really mesmerizing it captures this moment of i guess great cross kind of existence of so many different religions it was a really quite an extraordinary place in the 1940s but then uh, the photographer who took all the pictures in in the exhibition, Tony Kirsting, um, was one of the most renowned architectural photographers in England at the time. And he went on so many different trips around the world, from Syria to Egypt, including Kurdistan, Iraqi Kurdistan, and I guess was sent there to to document the amazing architecture of the space, but ended up taking pictures of people at the same time, obviously being there on, on trips. But it's quite heartbreaking that so many of the images that we saw represent places that have been destroyed since, because we all know, we're all too familiar with names like Erbil and Mosul, and we know that these places have been really battered by recent conflict. But seeing these images of them in the glory of the kind of the sunbaked 1940s was really quite amazing. And then you can also see how. Potent. the tradition that is at heart of a community like the Yazidi community has really remained and it informs what you think of seeing movements like the the Kurdish resistance movement and how that tradition has really been instilled and, and it has been so potent for decades and decades and decades.
0: Some of the portraits are very immediate and kind of absorbing. There's a particular one of a young girl who's wearing most beautiful Yazidi dress and beads, col on her eyes. She's staring into the camera and you, you feel like there's a direct connection with her in a very powerful way. But then you start thinking behind all of that, you know, this young British kind of architectural member of the Royal Geographical Society kind of going in and snapping these people. I mean, he he took portraits very much with a tripod. I think it took a while. It wasn't sort of, you know, quick snap and run. But it felt interesting, just given that context, how you start feeling almost a bit, tiny bit uneasy about the immediacy of the portraiture.
8: Definitely. I mean, I talked to the curator um, of the show exactly about this and he said something really interesting exactly about what you say, that the portrait wasn't just snapped, it wasn't a street shot. At the time, the equipment was quite cumbersome. It took some time to take the photo and that informs the way that we should read it. Let's take a listen.
9: Many people have a very strong sense of connection with the photograph of the young Azidi woman, the one that sort of sits alone on the wall. Because I think it raises a lot of questions. I mean, it's a very, very beautifully composed image. But I think the other thing it raises questions about is was no sense of discomfort or anxiety or reticence about being photographed by Tony. He was very shy. He was quite bumbling. It would have taken him a long time to set up all his equipment. And yet he gets these photographs in which people don't look as if they're pulling away from the camera. You, know, you can always sense that somebody's been photographed and they haven't really enjoyed it. I suppose the one I would take was one of the ones, probably the winged bull at Nineveh, because that is the one that I think many of us remember, seeing the video of it being destroyed, you know, by kind of jackhammers and sledgehammers. And when Kirsten photographed it, it was a kind of new discovery. It had only just been unearthed from the desert. This is something that's kind of existed almost for millennia. And then it had this kind of brief period that spans from Kirsten photographing it to its destruction a few years ago.
0: Wow, I mean, it feels like such a wrench to hear that and to read it. And the sad thing about this exhibition is every time you get to the end of one of the little blurbs, you're waiting to see whether that piece of history still exists because ISIS were kind of dynamiting all the stuff over there. And there's a mosque that's pictured that is, you know, no longer. And apparently, you know, it had the body of, Jonah and the whale or Jonah of the whale <laughs> in it and it's and it you know it was absolutely systematically destroyed so I mean this exhibition is is very complex emotionally wouldn't you say
8: absolutely and I think it's also very interesting from the point of view of exactly what you were saying you know going to watch it as a woman trying to interrogate the importance or the relevance of a man taking those pictures and the kind of a, a British man travelling to those places and taking those pictures. But at the same time, some of these photos are some of the few documents that we have of these places. The, not all of these places have been documented that well. So it's kind of tussling up in your head as well. Like, how do you feel about the relevance of these pictures? Obviously, they bring up challenges in the, kind of the debates they were having about the gaze and who that belongs to. But at the same time, they're very, they're very important documents. So where do we stand on that? I think it's a really interesting place to go see and find out for
0: yourself well Kiara while we're on the subject of Kurdistan I see you have our friend Isabel Kaiser's book in front of you called the Kurdish women's freedom movement gender body politics and the militant femininities she's been spending a lot of time in modern Kurdistan meeting women who are part of a militant feminist movement which is fascinating and very complex and Kiara I know you're reading it now what's your take on the contemporary situation there
8: well, I think the interesting point that I take from what I've read of Isabel's book is that we tend to think of the movement of liberation and this kind of female-led, we famously female-led uh, movement. We tend to think of it as something extraordinary, out of the ordinary. We tend to not really think about female involvement in situations of war and revolution around history um, but I guess one of the points that she makes is that this is not quite so extraordinary what is extraordinary about the specific Kurdish situation is that women have really created a structure there where the struggle for their own equality is happening at the same time as a struggle for that kind of national independence right so that the two things are all in, one and the same in so many other situations you do have females perhaps participating in revolutionary movements but once that objective has maybe been um, you know reached then the situation kind of goes back to the beginning and or, you know you've seen it so many times with wars where women really participate in the effort and then once peacetime is is achieved again then suddenly the structures all kind of muscle back in into place and they have to go back to life inside the home and, and that kind of thing. Things. I think what's really interesting about this is that the Kurdish example proves that there is another way of approaching, um, you know, revolution in a way, and that that way is not to kind of sexualize the participants in, in the militant movement. But the only way to create that camaraderie is to consider people as people. And it's
0: very interesting in Isabel Kaiser's book, it's really unpacking in a way I have never heard before the sort of actually doctrine and the kind of radical, actually utopian um, sort of tenets of this, of this like militant feminist group firsthand. And I suppose the thread that runs from this to the show we saw yesterday is the fact that this this, this area and autonomous region as well has been embattled by conflict and a struggle for, for independence for so many decades and that's starting to define it and define its people and its women. So it's, it's definitely a book, it's quite an academic book, but definitely worth reading. Well, thank you, Chiara, um, for your Culture Corner. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you in the studio. And now for a final thought. Confex chief sub-editor Genevieve Bates reflects on why a book club has been her most enduring social activity over the past decade. About once a month, usually around
10: seven on a Monday evening, I struggle to pull away from a wonderful novel, often with just 15 or 20 pages left, to go to my book club. It's a group that was created by a writer friend about 12 years ago. The founders invited a disparate smattering of bookish neighbours, old friends, and new acquaintances. Some, like me, worked in publishing, while others just read voraciously. Over the years, members have dropped out, but a core group remains. And, having set one or two books a month throughout that time, we now share a communal canon of about 150 titles, which fuels our conversations with half remembered cross references. Reading might be a solitary pastime, but my book club is a boisterous, boozy conclave with which I've had a love hate relationship that has outlasted my membership of any gym, school mum gang, or workplace team. For some, the deadline pressure and imposed choices can turn reading into a chore. So why do I stick with it? First, because it forces me out of reading ruts. Left to my own devices, I might binge Georgette Heyer or Ian Rankin for weeks on end, but the club drags me towards the topical, and my readerly brain is better nourished for it. It's unlikely that I would have galloped through hefty novels such as Donna Tartt's *The Goldfinch* or Hanya Yanagihara's *A Little Life* without the spur of the monthly meeting, and it prompts me to read more nonfiction too. Anyone who follows the news might think they already know what's inside a title such as John Kerry Rue's Bad Blood, about the rise and fall of Elizabeth Holmes' startup Theranos. But the details have stayed with me in a way that skimming reviews would not. I used to think that I didn't need to read the controversial books of the day because the weekend supplements were full of opinions about them. But reading them, as opposed to merely being aware of them, has brought unexpected benefits. It's boosted my confidence in my own judgment, and help me to stop simply quoting the views of others. Sometimes, a forthcoming screen adaptation brings an older book to our attention. Some of our choices are obscure. We've tried classics, but there's always someone who studied a canonical text at school and does not wish to relive the trauma. The old masterworks can be quite dense. We all agree that they deserve to be read, perhaps during a long summer in your teens or early retirement. But now is not that time. And a book club requires choices that will be read in full in order to give rise to lively discussion. Some evenings, lively would be an understatement. Fictional characters prompt stories to be told that would never get an airing in the usual run of social life. Our childhood slights, workplace affairs, and tales of extreme family drama tumble out. There's a sense of closeness created by inhabiting an author's well-crafted world that makes us more reflective, confessional, and possibly even funnier than we are elsewhere. If you're thinking of starting a book club, my advice is plunge in. The rewards are immediate and also cumulative. Invite people who love to read. They don't have to be close friends. Your fellow members become chums of a different sort. Select books by discussing them together. Don't make one person responsible for inflicting a choice on the others. Some of the fun is making your pitch for the worthiness of a new author or release. And finally, repurpose the cliched maxim. What happens at book club stays at book club.
0: Well, thank you, Genevieve. And wow, I'm sold. (laughs) Plunge in. Marcella, Gillian, what book currently graces your respective nightstands?
3: Yeah, a book that I've finally started to read because it's on my uh, my table quite a while is um, Charlie Porter's What Artists Wear. And of course, in my point of view of fashion, I have to read it. So I read it. And it's fantastic. I first thought, okay, reading about fashion, I don't know. I mean, historic novels about bi- biographies are nice, but okay, let's start. And um, Charlie is a fashion critic. Char- Charlie Porter is a fashion critic, and it's really excellent because he picks very interesting artists and describes their way of of styling, of fashion, of, of working everything, and. Um, He says that artists have a deeper understanding of clothing, of fashion, because it's also part of their message. And I just can agree because I always thought that when, when I go to Art Basel, for example, that everybody there, not only artists, but also collectors and gallerists, are actually better dressed, more interestingly dressed than the fashion crowd.
0: Oh, controversial. Julian, <laughs> um, you've been reading uh, quite substantial fashion biography.
4: <laughs> oh, I just loved it. It's a book that's really stayed with me. It's uh, Justine Picardy's book uh, called Miss Dior, and it's a story of courage and controversy. Um, uh, Catherine Dior was Christian Dior's sister, and uh, she was actually in the French Resistance, And she really spoke very, very, very little about this um, after the war. And so it's an incredible work of research. And um, Justine Piketty is an incredible journalist. And and I think that what really stands out is the nature of the research and how beautifully written. And what comes to light is this um, conflict in Paris during the uh, uh, occupation of creativity, collaboration, resistance. And it's um, it's really sobering to read. It touches, of course, on the fashion uh, development of Christian Dior. And then alongside, it has the the years of occupation in France. It's, it's so well put together.
0: I mean, Justine Picardy is a wonderful writer. And it's unusual to find somebody who can write about history, but also style and fashion, the detail of that era. Um, but also the kind of heartbreak of, of that particular situation um, because, you know, people, <laughs> resistance um, members oh. who got, who, who got, you know, ratted out were not treated any differently yeah. from, from you know, mm. absolutely dreadful circumstances. But, but such a beautiful book. I haven't mm. yet really tackled it but I'm going to get your copy Julian. <laughs> and it really
4: just shows how the study of fashion is such a social history as well and I think I think that I really came away with that.
0: Now I've just read a book by Simone de Beauvoir also set in Paris and it was, it's interesting because it's a novella really but it was just published well last year it was published so way after her death and it's interesting that it's it sort of been sitting around for so long because it's about her very, very good friend um, who she she called Zaza. Um, she met her when she was nine um, and they were at convent school together in, in Paris and this book is very sort of thinly veiled uh, sort of homage to her and um, her fascination, her dedication her love for this friend, girlfriend of hers and it, it was Zaza who really kind of got her thinking about a lot of the ideas that became these Simone de Beauvoir kind of you know absolutely kind of sort of pioneering concepts in feminism so then this book is is beautiful it's fiction it's it got a it's a feel of, of the mandarins the book that she won the, uh, the Prix Goncourt for uh, but it's also just so personal and um, quite haunting there's a tragic twist which I won't tell you about
4: but Sophie, are you going to uh, bring this up? Do you have a book club? Do you do do you?
0: I don't. I've away? never been in a book club, <laughs> so I just um, I just pick books up as I as I go. I spend a lot of time in daunts, um whole, you know, kind of gathering, and I'm longing to kind of really. Conquer some of the books that I keep on buying, but you're in a book club.
4: Well, I'm not now, but it did make me uh, very nostalgic hearing Genevieve's p- piece because uh, when uh, I left university, a group of media students, journalists, formed a book group, but we thought book group sounded too too frumpy and fuddy-duddy in middle-aged, so we called ourselves the Spines, uh, like a rock band, uh, like book <laughs> spines, and and we thought we were a very cool book club, and and they were it was great actually, but it. But it ended and we started talking about books and then we started talking about magazines and journalism and print and I think it ended up becoming like a movie movie night club so. um, <laughs> <a> slippery slope
0: <laughs> well that would suit your metier a little bit uh, well that's all we have time for this time thank you to Julian Tobias and Marcella Pallet for keeping me company once again Issue 5 of Confect is out now, and issue 6 isn't far away. Get your copy delivered to your door by subscribing at confectmagazine.com. Confect Corner is produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening.